I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On Monday, October 4th, the Supreme Court begins its new term. Here to preview the blockbuster cases of the forthcoming term are two of America's leading Supreme Court commentators. Kimberly Atkins-Store is a senior opinion writer and columnist for Boston Globe Opinion. She's also co-host of the podcast Sisters-in-Law. Also, Kim is the inaugural columnist for The Emancipator and an MSNBC contributor. Kim, it is wonderful to have you on We the People. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And Jess Braven is Supreme Court correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, where he was previously United Nations correspondent and editor of the WSJ California Weekly. He was previously a reporter for the LA Times, is the author of several books and a great friend of We the People. Jess, it is wonderful to have you back. Uh, It's always a delight. Let's begin with a case that the court is hearing during the first week of the new term, and that's United States versus Zubaida, involving state secrets. Jess, tell us what's at stake in the case and what are the main legal arguments uh, we should be looking for. There's a detainee at Guantanamo Bay whose nom de guerre is Abu Zubaydah. But before he was brought to Guantanamo Bay, he was brought to a CIA black site in Poland where uh, he was, uh, by all accounts, tortured, uh, waterboarded, and many other uh, very abusive techniques were used to uh, attempt to get him to, to talk. Uh, he later was transferred to Guantanamo Bay after the CIA closed that black site. Uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe, the European Court of Human Rights uh, ruled that uh, Poland apparently violated its obligations uh, to the European Union by permitting the CIA to operate a black site there where torture was inflicted on detainees and authorized Zubaida to file a lawsuit against the Polish authorities, which he has done. Uh, for evidence, Zubaida wants depositions from CIA contractors who designed and inflicted the torture uh, to former Air Force psychologists who put that uh, interrogation program together. Uh, The uh, United States does not want those contractors to testify in this civil lawsuit against Polish authorities, and it has invoked the state secrets privilege, which dates back to the 1950s, Uh, in which the government asserts that there would be too great uh, of a threat to national security to permit certain evidence to be introduced into court uh, and therefore can exclude it, even if the consequence is a dismissal of the case. Now, it's not clear that this case would be dismissed. It's actually going on in a a foreign court. Uh, uh, The United States has, of course, agreements with Poland and other countries to exchange evidence for legitimate court proceedings, and no one contests that the court proceeding itself is legitimate under Polish and European law. The question is whether uh, the, uh, the two CIA contractors can be compelled to submit for these depositions. Uh, One interesting uh, element, though, is that the state secrets uh, that are at issue 
aren't really secret in the real world. For example, uh, it's well known that Poland uh, was host to a CIA black site since the European Court of Human Rights has uh, written an opinion about this very fact. But the United States contends that being forced to officially uh, recognize or allowing its former contractors to officially recognize this fact uh, could be damaging to national security in, in the future. Thank you so much for that. So Kim has just set the case up. It sounds like the respondents are saying the state secrets privilege doesn't apply because this information isn't secret. The petitioners say that it does apply and therefore the CIA should be able to claim it. And the question is whether the court can itself make an assessment of potential harms uh, and require discovery uh, based on its evaluation of the dangers. Um, what, what, what can you add to Jess's uh, uh, setup of the case and, and how are the justices likely to balance those competing arguments? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. It's one of the most difficult things to try to say, you know what, no, we should give the courts uh, less discretion in these cases, is the determination as, as to whether something uh, presents a serious risk to national security. I mean, that so far, that has been sort of a uh, a trump card, that, that phrase always seems different now, but uh, sort of a, a, a very strong interest that the um, that is being asserted in these cases where this uh, privilege is used. But is it, you know, is it limitless? And I think this, if there is a case where the court has some room here um, to say, well, you know what, no, it's one where the facts are as clear as they are in that, as Jess pointed out, this isn't a secret. So I think if the court is willing to go that way, it's hard to tell because the court doesn't take up a ton of state secrets cases. So it's not like it's a big um, body of recent decisions to to look at, to sort of read tea leaves here, but it's one that I'm going to be watching as an observer very closely to see how they come out. Thank you very much for that. Well, soon after, at the beginning of November, the court will hear New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This is a big Second Amendment case that has the potential to change the way the court evaluates Second Amendment cases. Uh, Jess, tell us what's at stake in this case, um, how the court is evaluating cases now, and what new approach it might adopt. Well, um, we all recall that in 2008 and, and, and 2010, the Supreme Court, uh, for the first time, recognized an individual right to arm self-defense under the Second Amendment. But those cases only extended to the, the facts, and the facts involved uh, keeping a handgun uh, inside the home for self-defense. Since then, the Supreme Court has been quite trepidatious about saying how far that Second Amendment right to armed self-defense extends, including whether it extends uh, outside the uh, the home or, or, or the curtilage, uh, being a good Supreme Court word uh, that refers to the, the grounds around a house. Um, but uh, and, and, and this reluctance was, was criticized by some members of the court, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito among them, had criticized the courts turning away appeals from lower court decisions that for the most part had upheld uh, gun regulations uh, under a, a, a kind of balancing test. Uh, the, uh, the, the court accepted this case uh, after 
the composition changed and it grew uh, more conservative by most accounts with the uh, addition of Amy Coney Barrett in the seat once held by, by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, and it asks the question of whether a uh, New York state law involving the issuance of concealed weapons permits uh, is consistent with the Second Amendment. Uh, pretty much uh, under New York state law, uh, one can't have a concealed weapon permit without demonstrating to local law authorities a specific need to uh, carry a, a firearm with you. Uh, the the a general concern that it might not be safe to walk the, the, the streets of uh, Rochester or Yonkers is not enough. You have to uh, demonstrate to the local authority. And that's the scheme that's being challenged uh, by the New York State uh, affiliate of the National Rifle Association and, and some, some state uh, resident uh, gun owners. Uh, one of the questions that we'll be looking for uh, is going to be uh, uh, what approach the court uses, is it going to, or is a majority of the court going to use the sort of balancing test that uh, most federal appeals courts have used in Second Amendment cases, or is it going to adopt the approach that uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh and and Justice Barrett have uh, shown some sympathy for in their uh, days as as appellate judges, which is looking at what they consider to be the uh, text and and history and and tradition of uh, the Second Amendment right uh, as exercised uh, uh, at, at, at the founding and, and thereafter. And of course, uh, even if one does adopt their approach, uh, uh, there's going to be some debate perhaps about what exactly the text and the history and the tradition uh, uh, tell us uh, today in, in 2021 when it comes to issuing concealed weapons permits. But, uh, but uh, all of us who've been waiting to see uh, a, a, another shoe drop when it comes to developing Second Amendment jurisprudence are, are going to watch this case quite closely. Thank you for that. Uh, in your uh, setup piece on the case for the Wall Street Journal, you quoted Justice Kavanaugh's dissent where he wrote in 2011 that courts are to assess gun bans and regulations based on text, history, and tradition, not by a balancing test that weighs the restriction in relation to its justification. And you note that Justice Barrett in 2019 adopted a similar position. Kim, if the court were to adopt this new standard, what would it mean in practice? Uh, Some have described it as a kind of strict scrutiny for gun regulations as opposed to intermediate scrutiny, but others uh, see things differently. Um, And and what laws, in addition to the one that's at issue here, might be vulnerable if the court adopts this new approach? Yeah, I I really am expecting the court to adopt, uh, to really dramatically expand uh, the Second Amendment with this ruling and basically extend Heller, uh, the ruling that just talked about that established that individual right to have a firearm outside of the home. Um, That seems to be what Justice Kavanaugh is really begging for. I mean, he, uh, in a dissent to uh, an... an order basically said, bring it on. Like, I, we think that these, I think that these courts are, are applying hella wrong and I can't wait for an opportunity uh, to, you know, take it up. I'm paraphrasing him. He didn't say all that, but that was essentially the gist of what he said. Um, at that point, one of the uh, 
I think now there are about seven laws that mirror um, this New York state law, which covers millions of people. We're talking big metropolises, New York City, Boston, San Francisco. That's a lot of places. Don't, don't be fooled by it. it's just seven states. It's millions and millions of people that these laws would apply to. And what it would really mean would be a wearing away of this limitator that Anthony Kennedy put in that Heller decision. That Heller decision would have been even broader if Anthony Kennedy didn't insist in order to be part of that 5-4, that that opinion include uh, a, a part that basically says, you know, some reasonable gun regulations can still exist under this analysis and tried to limit it a little bit. It seems that that limit may be whittled away a great deal because this is one of the most basic limitations, uh, basic regulations that to carry a gun outside of your house, you have to give a reason. Now, of course, folks on the other side says it's too arbitrary. It leaves it the decision making to individual folks, you know, at local officials who can decide whether you can carry this gun outside the house or not. But at a time when gun violence, even in the pandemic, every other kind of crime dropped, gun violence went up. Um, it's a, a real uh, big stained interest that I think even if strict scrutiny is applied here, uh, there is room for the court to find that these regulations are narrowly tailored to it. But I don't expect by what the, these justices have said so far that that's going to be the ultimate outcome. Thanks so much for that. Well, let's now turn to the abortion case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is argued on December First, uh, what the court will do with Roe v. Wade is one of the great constitutional questions of our time. Uh, None of us uh, knows, but I would be uh, grateful for your thoughts about how justices who may have disagreed with Roe as an original matter but are not sure about whether to overturn it will evaluate the question of precedent. Uh, The three tests for precedent are, um, has a precedent Uh, become unworkable? Are there changed uh, facts and circumstances? And are there reliance interests that have developed around it? Uh, Jess, as you think about Chief Justice Roberts and perhaps Justice Kavanaugh applying that test about precedent, how do you imagine they might come out? Well, those three elements, of course, uh, are like every other uh, test of the Supreme Court, subject to some debate over how to apply them, whether Roe v. Wade and and, and maybe more specifically um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, a 1992 case, which narrowed but did not eliminate the the rights uh, uh, articulated in in Roe, uh, are unworkable, sort of depends on whether you want the abortion rights to exist at all. So uh, certainly the state of Mississippi, which passed the law we're talking about here that uh, bans abortions after 15 weeks, uh, uh, considers and says quite clearly in its briefs that Roe is unworkable and that furthermore that uh, newer understandings of the origins of life uh, mean that we should reevaluate the basis of Roe. Uh, and then, you know, those those seem to be hard to uh, uh, I think, uh, come up with any conclusions about how workable or what how new the knowledge is. The reliance may be the most interesting area that we talk about when this case comes forward, because what who is reliance and 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 what exactly is being relied on when we look at at Roe versus Wade? Now, some cases when we talk about uh, a reliance interest, uh, it, it's pretty clear that there are long term investments that are made. Uh, 
assuming that certain aspects of loss, you know, when someone can declare bankruptcy or, uh, you know, what, uh, what, uh, uh, you know, what, what kind of disclosures, a, a, a corporate, uh, a, a leader has to give in, in terms of stocks and shares, Th- those sort of reliance interests are, 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 are relatively easy to identify. The reliance interests, uh, in, Roe v. Wade and, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey depend a lot on on what I think on what scale one is looking at the reliance from the government's point of view. Uh, I'm talking about the Biden administration and the uh, views of abortion providers and and sort of the the, the uh, 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 ACLU and other other uh, uh, interests who f- favor abortion rights. The reliance interest is essentially a generation of women, basically all women of, of childbearing age in the United States today, growing up with the understanding that there is a constitutional right to abortion, at least under some circumstances, particularly at the early stages of pregnancy. Uh, another way to look at the reliance interest, which is where the opponents of Roe would say, is that, well, the reliance interest lasts basically nine months because uh, that's the length of a, of a, of a pregnancy. And, uh, and that uh, people will know that they are not guaranteed access in every state to abortion at some point, uh, uh, you know, well before a, a pregnancy could, could begin. So, you know, the, how, how much uh, time, uh, you know, is involved in asserting the reliance interest, I think, uh, may be uh, of some debate within the, within the Supreme Court. Thank you for that, that thoughtful analysis. Uh, Kim, uh, if Chief Justice Roberts does find five votes to uh, formally avoid overturning Roe while perhaps upholding the Mississippi law, what might the opinion look like? Uh, how, and how would you analyze those three uh, factors uh, about when precedent should be overturned? Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with a lot of what Jess said. I think on the reliance issue, though, it's even greater than that. It's the reliance of an entire healthcare system uh, that has this as a potential life-saving procedure that can be given to women uh, in the event that something goes wrong with their pre- pregnancy, for example. I mean, you look at uh, the reliance issue uh, interests uh, in um, making sure healthcare remains equitable, and you have you know black women and and uh, indigenous women of America who uh, are three times as likely to suffer a complication in pregnancy that ends in their death. Um, you have people who don't have, you'll have still people who don't have access. I mean, getting back to the workability part of it. Well, Roe v. Wade will still essentially be in action in half the country, just not in the other half. It's working in some places and not in others. Um but in terms of what the court might do, how it might thread this needle, I think it will be really hard for the court to issue an opinion. So essentially, one of two, one of three things can happen here. The court could strike down this Mississippi law as violative as Roe v. Wade. We can both, we seem to think that's unlikely. They can say, okay, we don't have to overturn Roe versus Wade. We think that this law passes the, the test, that this is not an undue burden on women by passing this law. There may be a way to stretch it to say that to get the five and uh, for chief uh, the chief justice who I'm told would really doesn't want that headline the Supreme Court overturned Roe v Wade to do that it's harder to do with this Texas law waiting down the pike that um, not only 
outlaws abortion after six weeks, but deputizes citizens to enforce it. That's heading right up. So it would be difficult to say, all right, this 15 weeks is okay, but what about eight? I mean, I I think that um, that may incentivize at least five members of the court if they do want to get rid of Roe v. Wade, just to do it in the Dobbs case. uh, And then the, the, the job is done. So, I mean, those are the potential outcomes. I don't feel hopeful given the Texas law, uh, that will be challenged. Uh, that is already, the petition's already been filed. Um, that is coming up the pike that when it comes to the side that wants to keep Roe, the law of the land, I think the ways that that could possibly happen are, are really slimming. Thank you for that. Uh, one more uh, question on this important case. Uh, Justices Breyer, Barrett, and Thomas have recently given speeches urging the public not to view the court as political and emphasizing that they rule based on their judicial philosophies rather than partisan politics. Uh, To what degree do you think uh, concerns about maintaining the court's legitimacy might play a role in some of the justices' decisions, perhaps uh, Chief Justice Roberts and, and Justice Kavanaugh, and I wonder if it might affect others? And uh, I wonder what you think about the memo uh, to Justice David Souter that uh, Joshua, former colleague uh, Joshua Prager recently published. Uh, Souter's law clerk, when the court was deciding whether or not to overturn Roe in 1992, wrote, if Roe is overturned, the public will understand that the court's reversal is explainable solely by reason of changes in the composition of the court and he went on to say that I'm convinced that it's now impossible for the court to overrule Roe without doing serious damage to both the public standing of the court and the ideal of the rule of law. Might similar arguments weigh on any of the swing justices uh, today, Jess? Well, those arguments, uh, I think, will weigh uh, on, the, on the chief justice. I mean, he's, he's indicated as much that, uh, as he did in, in uh, the, the last abortion case that the court uh, decided involving the Louisiana admitting privileges law, that even though he had dissented from a similar Texas case, he then voted to strike down the Louisiana law because he felt that uh, the rules of precedent required it and the legitimacy, I don't know if he used that term in, in his opinion, but uh, those uh, that, that as opposed to the substance of the decision uh, guided him. Uh, I think though that legitimacy of the court can cut different ways for the for the most conservative justices the court's legitimacy was damaged by Roe v Wade and they view overruling it as a way to restore legitimacy and for the many 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 people who uh, voted for conservative presidents who quite explicitly, such as uh, former President Trump, said they were going to appoint justices who would overrule Roe v. Wade. Uh, that's what they want. That is the legitimacy in their minds that they are are seeking. So uh, how that applies to the chief and then also to a degree to Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett, we suspect, uh, will be, I think, the, the key consideration. I wonder, though, if I could say one more thing, because there is one way where the court could take a half step without explicitly overruling uh, Casey and uh, 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 Roe v. Wade, and that would be the line that Mississippi is actually challenging, and that is viability as the real bright line between uh, a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy and the state's 
power to prevent her from doing so. So uh, the line has been fetal viability outside the womb. Uh, Mississippi is basically pushing that back by a week or so uh, and saying we want to uh, eliminate that as the real dividing line uh, when it comes to whose interests predominate when, uh, in abortion. It is possible that the Supreme Court could say that viability no longer is a legitimate dividing line without explicitly overruling uh, Roe versus Wade. Kim, your thoughts on this question of legitimacy, the degree to which it will weigh on uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, or other justices, and also what you think the effect on the court's legitimacy would be if the court does overturn Roe? Yeah, I think that the point, particularly the point that you made at the beginning um, of this question about the only thing changing, right, which is the second factor in sorry, decisis analysis, the only thing that has changed is the makeup of the court. And I remember the first day I covered the Supreme Court, actually, um, they handed down the decision in Gonzalez v. Carhartt, which upheld the federal uh, uh, so-called partial birth abortion law. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in a very uh, fiery descent from the bench, one of many that she would end up making during that era, said that the only thing that had changed since Roe and Chase and Casey was the makeup of the court. And this is the first time that the court had rolled it back. I remember it was just such a um, a shocking and unexpected thing to happen on that first day. And I'll never forget it. And that's certainly been the case ever since. The more the court changes, the more Roe is threatened. And it's very difficult for members of the public, regardless of what side they're on, to see that direct correlation. And it's really hard for any of the justices to say, no, we're it's not ideology. It's not, we're just, we're just applying the law faithfully. It's harder and harder for members of the public to believe that. And I think they all know that. The question is whether they care. I think um, to some extent, uh, the Chief Justice have has expressed some concern about the legitimacy of the court. But when you have the other justices that you talked about, um, particularly someone like uh, Justice Barrett expressing this concern while at the same time standing next to Mitch McConnell at the McConnell Center, <laughs> giving us, you know, giving this speech, it's hard to take that concern seriously or take that claim seriously. And the public sees that too. Well, let us turn from abortion to religion. There are at least two cases with uh, important implications for the religion clauses of the First Amendment. And the first one is uh, Carson versus Macon. And the question is, can the state of Maine prohibit students who participate in a generally available student aid program from using the aid to attend schools that provide religious instruction without violating the religion clauses? This jumps on the Espinoza case that the court decided uh, recently, just tell us about what's going on and what the stakes are. Well, the Supreme Court has been uh, expanding the deference to uh, religious uh, exercise over the past several years, sometimes with very broad majorities, including the more liberal justices, sometimes more narrowly. This is the latest in uh, a case in a long-running effort by um, religious conservatives to uh, open uh, religious schools to uh, public aid to get state support for religious schools, something which uh, had been uh, uh, largely prohibited under pre previous precedents. Maine is uh, an interesting case because, uh, like the other states, it does guarantee a free public education to all the children in the state, but it doesn't have enough public schools to do that. Maine is a sparsely populated state, and about half of what the 
state calls school administrative units, uh, I guess the equivalent of school districts, don't actually have any schools in them. So those, or public schools at least. So those school administrative units or school districts uh, arrange for public education through other means. They either contract with uh, other school districts to educate the children in their areas, or they provide uh, a tuition reimbursement or contract with private schools to provide that free public education. Uh, here, the challenge is to the state law that uh, requires schools receiving this uh, uh, the, this tuition money, this tax money, be non-sectarian. And it is essentially the next step from the Espinoza case that you just mentioned, Jeff. Uh, in that case, the state of Montana had a very limited program to allow uh, 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 tuition subsidies, fairly low tuition subsidies for uh, uh, private schools. And uh, the state Supreme Court had said that uh, the whole program was not valid because it uh, because religious schools were able to get access to that money. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't, uh, you state Supreme Court, you can't abolish the entire program on that grounds just because religious schools may be able to uh, get some of that uh, fairly modest tuition support from the, from the state of Montana. The main situation is different because it's not just sort of a supplement or adjunct to the uh, secular public education system, uh, which as it was in Montana, but it actually is the secular public education system because these school administrative units, as they're called, don't operate any schools. And so the state of Maine says we're not the same as the situation in Espinoza because uh, what we are doing is accomplishing through contracting uh, the exact same thing we would if we were operating the public school ourselves. And no one says that we, the state of Maine, have to operate a religious public school. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. We can't operate a religious public school. So our program is not like the uh, tuition assistance program that the court uh, discussed in Espinoza. But uh, the the parents who want to use the, uh, the state uh, funds to go to religious schools say, you're just discriminating against religious schools. I mean, the the, the school's academic uh, uh, qualification is not at issue. They are, uh, you know, sufficiently accredited as to meet the state's requirements for, uh, you know, curriculum and so on. The, the but they also want though religious education and the religious environment that certain schools uh, would also provide, and they say. You're just, you know, the academics are all are, are, are satisfactory. You're just excluding schools because of the religious content, and uh, that is discriminating against us because of, of our religion. So that's the question before the, uh, the Supreme Court, and whether the court views this main situation as being essentially main carrying out its public school mission through uh, uh, contracting because of population issues, or whether it sees it as uh, through the, the another angle as just you're just excluding religious schools for no reason other than the fact that they're religious, and that is discrimination that uh, the Constitution won't abide. Thank you very much for that and for explaining so clearly uh, the distinction with the Montana decision. As you say, 
uh, and as Chief Justice Roberts emphasized in Montana, um, that decision turned on the school's religious status as religious schools rather than on their curriculums. And Chief Justice Roberts said there may be a difference between an institution's religious identity and its conduct. He said, we acknowledge that point, we, but we don't examine it here. And it, as it turns out, that's the very point that a three-judge panel of the First Circuit, which included retired Supreme Court, Court Justice David Souter, uh, invoked. Um, he sat by designation in this First Circuit uh, case, and he distinguished Espinoza from Maine on the grounds that uh, what was being subsidized uh, was um, uh, not uh, religious instruction in Espinoza, and that could be the case here. So an important case. Uh, there are competing precedents on both sides sort of all over the place. And as you say, Jess, this is an area where the court's been increasingly active. Kim, how do you think the court will address this this uh, rather fine distinction between a, a school's status and its curriculum and, and, and more broadly, how will this fit into the way the court is showing increasing solicitude for uh, the First Amendment rights of free, ex- free exercise? Yeah, this is such an interesting case, because generally speaking, I always say this is a very pro-First Amendment court. The court is very protective of First Amendment rights. Well, here you have two First Amendment rights that are competing. You have the Establishment Clause versus the Free Exercise Clause, and they're battling out, and there's that tension. But we have seen the court really dramatically expand its free exercise protections in recent years. We've seen it do it even when it's not in session with all of these shadow docket cases involving challenges by churches against COVID uh, restrictions on gathering uh, and the court being very favorable to, to granting those orders in favor of those churches on this claim. We've seen uh, increasing free exercise claims being made against you know laws um, for seeking exemptions and exceptions to uh, anti-discrimination laws. Um, we, we've really seen that that's where the energy and the growth is. And I think that um, plus this Espinoza case makes it really, if I had to read tea leaves, I would say it would... It, the, the onus is probably going to be on Maine to really defend this ban uh, on the use of this, especially situationally, given that for um, some of these students, you can say, where else can they go when you're really denying them the ability to use this subsidy to, to educate their children in a way that because the closest school may be um, a religious school and it may not be because of religion that you want to send your child there. But I am more broadly, you know, watching the expansive, the expansion of this free exercise protection. Because as I said before, it can apply to so many other places. And it seems to be an area where the court is really, um, really flexing its muscle. Thank you very much for that. Uh, let's turn now to uh, another important case with uh, free exercise dimensions. Uh, it's the Ramirez case, which you wrote about uh, recently, uh, Jess. Uh, the Supreme Court blocked Texas's execution for an inmate who wanted a pastor's touch. Was the evocative headline of your piece? Tell, tell us what's at issue in this case. Well, I have to say, you know, reporters usually don't write headlines, and that one wasn't mine. So let's let's uh, hear it for the the copy desk and and uh, and writing that evocative uh, 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 phrase. Um, this is a uh, uh, free exercise at the other spectrum, not for uh, in a, uh, young and innocent children with their lives ahead of them, but for a convicted killer uh, with his life about to end. Uh, two years ago or so, the Supreme Court had 
a very contentious series of emergency orders involving uh, the uh, religious rights, uh, both uh, rights with a GH and rights with a TE, uh, that condemned inmates had at the very last moments of their lives in the execution chamber and whether they could be accompanied by uh, a pastor or imam or, or, or spiritual counselor uh, in the, the room where they were being put to death. And uh, ultimately, the court, uh, after questions about whether they treated uh, Muslim and Buddhist inmates uh, as favorably as, as Christian inmates were, were, were treated uh, in their final moments, uh, seemed to suggest that, uh, that uh, uh, the state would have to meet a very high burden to justify uh, excluding a religious counselor or spiritual advisor pastor uh, from the execution chamber uh, as the inmate uh, was put to death. Uh, in Mr. Ramirez's case, uh, he uh, argues that his particular uh, brand of, of, uh, of, uh, of Baptist religion uh, involves the laying on of hands. There's a citation from the New Testament about laying on of hands as a, as a spiritual act, and his pastor uh, would like to stand by him in the execution chamber uh, and uh, touch him and uh, utter some prayers or hymns uh, as Mr. Ramirez is uh, uh, injected with uh, lethal narcotics uh, for his crimes. The state does not want to do that and says that the uh, presence of the pastor could be, or at least the, the physical touch of the pastor could be disruptive, as could the prayers or, 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 or hymns, uh, and that the pastor must be limited to standing silently in the corner in the execution chamber, not being able to take these more uh, affirmative steps to uh, guide uh, Mr. Ramirez to his next uh, place. Uh, the, the Ramirez's lawyer says essentially the state says the pastor can do nothing more than be a potted plant in the in the corner of the room. The state says that you know executions are very sensitive procedures and they can't afford the risk of uh, disruption, uh, and they need to be able to proceed uh, quite uh, deliberately in in uh, uh, taking the inmate's life. So uh, the Supreme Court did. Um, block the execution from going forward under uh, as Texas had planned. But it is interesting that it ordered a very rapid briefing schedule and uh, 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 accelerated the argument to, to the November sitting. Normally, uh, given when the court agreed to hear this case, it would have been scheduled much later in the term. So it suggests that perhaps some members of the court who are frustrated with what they view as stalling tactics by uh, death penalty opponents and, and condemned inmates and sort of gaming the, the system to delay executions, they were willing to entertain uh, Mr. Ramirez's claim, but not in a way that would uh, overly delay his execution. So they uh, put it ahead of other cases so they could give their answer and he could be put to death, uh, whether with or without his pastor's touch uh, in, in fairly rapid order. This, uh, as you wrote in your piece, is a case uh, decided under the Federal Religious Land Use and Institutional Persons Act, which bans prison policies that substantially burdens an inmate's religious exercises unless they're the least restrictive way to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Kim, in evaluating this case, which which has such powerful facts, as well as the case involving the Buddhist inmate um, recently, do you think the justices are 
simply applying the statute or they seem to be motivated by background concerns about the constitutional protections for free exercise that they're balancing against their uh, more general reluctance to impose limits on the death penalty under the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, I think that that this case is a key test to really see uh, where the justices are on this. If there is that continued expansion that we've been talking about, about this free exercise right, even when it bumps up against other really important interests. I mean, the government says they have an interest in making sure that the process of carrying out an execution is orderly, um, that it is, you need it to be quiet so that you know um, you can hear the processes taking place. You, you you know what's happening in there. It can be a safety concern. Um, and certainly we have seen in recent years the very serious Eighth Amendment uh, questions raised about executions and the way they've been administered, and particularly with um, lethal injections that, um, you know, the federal lethal injections were halted for over a decade while uh, the Justice Department studied how this was being um, uh, carried out a lot of times. Times um, the the inmates were in pain and and clearly um, suffering during this process. And if the state is saying, "Look, we need quiet in there, we need order in there to make sure that's not happening," um, I think that's a fairly compelling reason. But again, we'll have to see in this balancing where the court where the court has come where the court will come down. I think this will be a telling case. There's one more very high profile uh, death penalty case on the docket, and that is. United States versus Sarnov, which arises out of the conviction of the perpetrator of the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, uh, Jess, tell us about that case. Well, uh, two uh, two brothers, uh, Tamerlan and Chokard Sarnayev, were uh, involved in this horrific terror attack on the Boston Marathon. Uh, and uh, Tamerlan was uh, killed uh, uh, with by police, uh, but uh, his younger brother survived, was uh, convicted, and sentenced to death by a federal court in Massachusetts. Um, the uh, First Circuit Court of Appeals uh, overturned the death sentence that Sarnayev received because it concluded that the trial judge had not adequately vetted the jurors for possible uh prejudice based on the very, very extensive uh, and understandable news coverage of the uh, crimes and their aftermath in Boston. And so uh, the appeals court uh, concluded that uh, he hadn't gotten a fair trial and uh, reduced his sentence to life imprisonment. The Justice Department appealed, uh, and uh, they are asking that the uh, Supreme Court reinstate the death sentence and con- arguing that the trial judge did take all the necessary steps to uh, protect uh, Tsarnaev's uh, fair trial rights. One of the interesting things, though, that, you know, uh, uh, picking up from, from, from Kimberly's uh, remarks is that you have the Biden administration arguing to reinstate a death sentence while President Biden himself has said he opposes the death penalty, would like to see the federal death penalty repealed, would like states to repeal their own death penalties, and that uh, his attorney general, Merrick Garland, has uh, imposed a moratorium on federal executions, and we understand that the Justice Department is not presently seeking uh, death sentences in its in its pending cases. So uh, why are they doing this? Uh, why are they pres- trying to get uh, Tsarnaev um, 
back on on death row. Uh, and the uh, I mean the reason may be that the that prosecutors have other interests that they want to see vindicated. They don't want there to be uh, too high. Uh, standards for fair trials when it comes to vetting jurors, and when I say too high, I'm not trying to be. Uh, I'm not trying to de- suggest that prosecutors don't want fair trials. I'm saying that they don't want the standards to be so high that they can easily be uh, uh, abridged or uh, violated and require uh, new sentencing or, or new proceedings. So that may be what is going on uh, in this case. The, the prosecutions just don't want a harder rule that they have to comply with when it comes to voir dire and and. and and juror qualification, but it does have a, a you know this interesting question of you know why are they proceeding here uh, to 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 get this death sentence reinstated when uh, the president and the attorney general seem so skeptical of the uh, utility and uh, uh, appropriateness of uh, capital punishment. So on the question in the case whether a district court is constitutionally required to ask potential jurors about the media coverage they've seen. Kim, how, how do you imagine the court might evaluate that? And is this likely to fall along uh, predictable lines or, or, or might there be a, a bipartisan consensus either way? Yeah, I think the one place where you, uh, the court traditionally, at least since I've been covering it, um, has been um, willing to break from the uh, ideological split that we talk about all the time are in cases uh, involving uh, criminal matters, criminal procedures, sentencing, um, Fourth Amendment even. We, we do see those um, unusual uh, alliances, at least unusual to the public. So that certainly is a possibility here. Of course, the court has many ways that they can deal with this. They can try to set some constitutional voir dire rule. Seems most of the time the court doesn't seem as willing to stick its constitutional neck out in cases if it doesn't absolutely have to. And I think this case might be one they could rule on it very narrowly. Um, of course, the Biden administration could also change its mind. It could finally be convinced by uh, folks to um, come out in in against uh, the the death penalty and make it their policy that they will not seek it and reverse its position. I was actually surprised when they took this up. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, this isn't a really a legal standpoint, but it's a tough case. It demonstrates one of the arguments against the federal death penalty or to any death penalty at all, um, which is in Boston, where I lived for a long time, where I cover, uh, I write for the Boston Globe. Um, it's a community that had has been traumatized, you know, just the name Sarnayev is very difficult in that place. I mean, it was a, it was a national story, but it was a local one for sure. And I've heard from some of the victims who said they wish that he had been given life in prison because then he would have gone to prison and we wouldn't have to think about him again. But instead we have to relive this over and over again as it makes its way up and down the court with all of the uh, appellate, um, the, the, appeals that he has a right to make. And this is an example of that. And that's a very um, powerful argument for people who oppose the death penalty. Um, But then on the other hand, you have those who say, if there was ever a crime that deserves this option to at least be on the table, it it was uh, the terroristic attack that the Sarnayev brothers carried out. So it's just a really powerful case much in a much bigger way when you're talking about the death penalty than the very limited question presented questions presented in this case. 
Thanks for all that and, and for reminding us of how resonant this case is in, in Boston and, and elsewhere. Uh, there are two important uh, free speech cases on the docket. Houston Community College System versus Wilson, which asks, does the First Amendment restrict the authority of an elected body to issue a censure resolution in response to a member's speech? And then another case from Texas, City of Austin versus Reagan National Advertising of Texas. Is Austin's regulatory distinction between on-premise and off-premise billboards a facially unconstitutional content-based regulation? Jess, can you give us a sense of both of those cases? Well, let's uh, first, uh, again, thank uh, the state of Texas for providing so much of the Supreme Court docket. Uh, it's given us some death cases, and, and here they've given us uh, a couple of, of First Amendment cases to, to contemplate. Uh, the, the Wilson case, which is the, the Houston Community College uh, system case, is interesting. If, uh, if you've uh, ever attended a, a local government uh, meeting of city council or school board, uh, you might be familiar with the uh, the with the, the gadfly character. There are certain people who come to every meeting and always have something to say, sometimes politely, uh, often quite, uh, quite aggressively uh, criticizing the operations of that local body. Uh, in Houston, someone of, of that sort uh, was elected to the Houston Community College Board, which runs that city's community colleges, and immediately began uh, 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 opposing and, and taking very aggressive actions against the other members of the board, like uh, with a, a robocall a platform and websites and uh, suing them and doing all kinds of things uh, in his uh, capacity as a board member and elected official to uh, attack the majority of the board, which he viewed as uh, making unwise and perhaps uh, illegal decisions. Uh, the rest of the board uh, didn't like this and found itself constantly having to respond to legal claims that he had filed and his uh, criticisms of them. Uh, and uh, basically, he was not really taking part in the sort of uh, deliberative process that legislative uh, bodies or boards like to think that they uh, stand for, even when people disagree. And so they censured him. They, they voted to censure his conduct uh, as inappropriate and, and beyond the bounds of the, of the uh, uh, board of uh, trustees. Uh, and he then uh, in turn, sued the board for censuring him for infringing on his First Amendment rights by trying to chill or criticize or or, or uh, punish him for his for his speech through this official censure resolution, which they said was really the the strictest and strongest uh, action they could take against him, since they can't kick him off the board since he was elected to it. So. Uh, a uh, federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, uh, found uh, reinstated the lawsuit. A trial judge had thrown it out, but uh, uh, the the Fifth Circuit reinstated this lawsuit and said he had bra raised a legitimate First Amendment claim and it should proceed uh, to trial. Uh, the school, rather the community college board, has appealed to the Supreme Court and it makes a number of arguments saying uh, for, uh, that. Uh, uh, first off, uh, the the board itself has a free speech right to express its views of his conduct, and that's what it was doing. Uh, and it argues that the freedom of speech provision in the Constitution uh, allows uh, uh, the board member to uh, say the uh, the uh, incendiary things he did that they they found so outrageous, but also allows them to uh, officially. 
uh, state their view of his conduct as a board member, and they believe he is, his, his conduct is, uh, is, is inappropriate. So that's that case. Thank you so much for that. Um, and that was great. Um, Kim, do you mind taking the Austin billboard case? Sure. So that case involves a city code in Austin that makes a distinction between uh, signs, billboards that can be put up between those that are digitized, uh, well, digitized signs, whether they are on the premises um, of, a, of a particular business or off the premises, like the billboards that we see. Um, and with those off-premises signs, they may not be digitized, but the signs, you can have a digital sign on your own premises. And um, it is facing uh, a, a facial challenge, a facially con- unconstitutional challenge, saying that it is content-based regulation uh, under the previous precedent in Reed versus Town of Gilbert, which found that um, state signs that were of certain categories um, were were the signs of certain categories were distinguished. It was it was more content based. The claim here uh, by the city of Austin saying, "Well, it's not content based. It's just where the sign is. It's it it we're not regulating what is put on the sign." But those challenging it are basically saying that uh, it works out to be that challenge that it is unconstitutional. Um, the city maintains that it's leaving ample room for free speech and not impeding anyone's speech. So it's just another limitation, another uh, opportunity for the court to further um, set the boundaries as to what uh, it is making. I personally think this case is not as strong as the one in Gilbert. Um, Just because you do have, it does seem to be really uh, time and place more than um, any sort of content based, but the court is taking it up and Austin seems pretty uh, confident Uh, that their orders uh, are constitutional. Well, let's end with a case that I know you've both been following, and it arises out of Puerto Rico. Uh, It's United States versus Vallejo Madero. And the question is whether Congress violated the equal protection uh, guarantees of the Constitution by establishing supplemental security income for residents of the 50 states, for the District of Columbia, and for the Northern Marian Islands, but not for residents of Puerto Rico. Jess, tell us about that case. Uh, Puerto Rico has uh, several million residents, more than uh, a number of states, and has actually been uh, a possession of the United States longer than some states have uh, been in the Union, such as uh, Alaska, or Hawaii, uh, Arizona. Uh, but Puerto Rico is not a state. It is uh, considered an unincorporated territory of the United States, which was acquired in the Spanish-American War by a, a treaty with Spain in 1898. Uh, and shortly after Puerto Rico and some other smaller possessions were acquired in this way by the United States, the Supreme Court issued a, a number of opinions known as the insular cases, which effectively allowed uh, uh, Congress to treat these territories uh, as colonies rather than as states or or future states to perpetually uh, govern them differently than states were governed. Until that point, if something was a U.S. territory, the idea was that it would eventually mature into a state like the Illinois Territory or the uh, Oklahoma Territory or what, what, what have you. 
So that has periodically given rise to questions at the Supreme Court and other courts about the legal status of Puerto Rico and how that affects the rights of people who live there. Uh, and uh, that's come up in criminal cases uh, several times in recent years. Uh, and now it comes up in this case about access to federal benefits under the Social Security program. Uh, and the, uh, the, the, the question is whether the distinction that Congress drew between Puerto Rico and the states uh, can stand this constitutional scrutiny. But lurking behind uh, this decision, uh, essentially the, the case involves somebody who, who, who had moved for, to Puerto Rico and continued to collect benefits and the government wanted them back because uh, if he's a Puerto Rico resident, he's not entitled to them. I mean, that's basically what the, the, the facts in, in this case. Uh, but, but lurking behind is this sort of larger question about Puerto Rico's uh, anomalous status with, with the United States. There have been some uh, briefs in this case urging the court to uh, repudiate the insular cases, which did allow this kind of uh, 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 dual system of, of treating U.S. territories. Uh, but the Supreme Court has not been willing to do that. It's been asked several times to repudiate those cases. Uh, people contend they were based on, uh, on racism or, or prejudice uh, when the, the U.S. Uh, uh, acquired territories where, whose residents uh, spoke Spanish and were predominantly uh, Catholic and, and, and uh, uh, Hispanic in, in background. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the court has, has not been willing to revisit it. Uh, you know, people in Puerto Rico are United States citizens, but under statute, not under the Constitution. It's never, the, the court has never ruled on whether the Constitution requires that such people born there uh, be automatically become citizens. And it's never had to come up because uh, Congress said people born in Puerto Rico are U.S. citizens. This is one of those cases where Congress decided to treat uh, residents of Puerto Rico differently, uh, and the court uh, will have to essentially decide uh, whether Congress still has that power. Fascinating. Uh, Kimberly, the stakes for the legal status of Puerto Rico uh, sound like they might be high. Um, how do you think the court might approach the case? Yeah, you know, the stakes are high. The facts of this case are really um, awful, too. You have this this uh, person who was living in New York City, collecting SSI because um, uh, of his health, moves to Puerto Rico to take care of a family member, unaware that that would affect his SSI status. And the government doesn't realize it for years, finds out, not only cuts off his ben his benefits, but sues him for, to repay all of this money. It's just such an awful case for the government to sort of, for the government to, to climb uh, its hill on. I'm not using that uh, correctly, but you know what I mean. Um, and it's also against this backdrop of where we've seen Puerto Rico really been be treated as something even less than a territory. The, it's people seen uh, treated as something less than American. Um, the government argues that it has the right to do this because it has an interest in recouping these costs from people who don't pay federal taxes, that the Puerto Ricans don't pay, pay federal taxes and therefore they should never be entitled to SSI benefits. Well, most people who get SSI benefits are at an income level that they don't pay federal taxes anyway. So I think that that's a, if that's the best the government has in this argument, I'm not sure that that will carry the day in this when you have this real bid to say, no, constitutionally, I am being treated differently. My 
uh, I am not being protected under the Equal Protection Clause, I think that's a tough argument for the government to make. One other point, if I could, is that uh, Joe Biden criticized the Trump administration's uh, position on this issue uh, when he was running for president, but the Justice Department uh, has uh, stuck to the legal argument here. Uh, And the White House takes the view that legally Congress does have the power to do this, and that's why they are arguing this position, but they want uh, Puerto Rico's uh, status or the residents of Puerto Rico's uh, um, right to these benefits uh, equalized with the states as a, as a policy matter. So they, they oppose the policy that they are defending. Uh, they would like to repeal the policy, but they are defending uh, the, uh, con- the congressional power to establish a policy that they disagree with. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this very illuminating and comprehensive Review of the docket. This is a court term with lots at stake. Jess, how are you thinking about it? These cases that we've talked about are are, are all very important, but I'm also thinking about uh, the term uh, in terms of of the the court's personalities. Uh, one is uh, Chief Justice Roberts and uh, his uh, vision of a slow move to the right, but in a way that. Uh, emphasizes institutional values and and gives uh, the losers most of the time uh, a seat at the table. That his his idea of institutional stability being uh, important and in some ways even more important than getting the outcomes he thinks are are legally correct. Whether he still is able to do that in a way he could when. Uh, 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 Justice Ginsburg was on the court and there were four liberals or when, when Justice Kennedy was, was on the court, uh, I think is going to be an open question and whether the younger uh, and more uh, aggressive conservatives are going to follow his lead on that. Uh, and the second personality is that of Justice Stephen Breyer, who has been on the court since 1994. He's uh, 83 years old. He seems to be uh, in, in, in good health, uh, and nothing immediate about his situation suggests he, he can't handle the workload. But he has been under a lot of pressure from uh, Democrats to make way for a, a much younger person that uh, President Biden could appoint, who uh, might uh, uh, be confirmed while the very precarious Democratic majority in the Senate uh, uh, exists. So uh, Justice Breyer has not told us his plans, but he has stressed that he is aware of these factors, and this could well be the uh, last year that uh, we see him on the court. And so watching how he conducts himself and what he has to say and what he writes, uh, I, I think, is, uh, is, uh, is, is worth doing. Thank you very much for that. Kim, last words in this great discussion to you. What are the big themes that you are looking at when you think about this important term? Yeah, I am looking to see just how often the court breaks down in this 6-3 ideological split uh, that folks like me have been talking about and writing about for so long. And if we're looking at personalities to get a idea as to whether that will happen in particular cases, where perhaps there might be a way to find a narrow consensus that can build a broader, a, a narrow way to build a broader consensus in a ruling, the two justices that I I would look to are Justice Kagan, who uh, very much is interested in the um, institutional stature of the court and is one who is likely to reach across the ideological line to try to find a narrow ruling that can get more people on board and and, um, 
prevent those ideological splits. I would also look in some cases, not all, not in the gun case that we talked about in some other cases, at Justice Kavanaugh, who I think has so far on his term, um, in his time on the bench, uh, exhibited a willingness on some narrow issues to cross that ideological line. Um, And I think who, you know, probably, and this is just my opinion, is still trying to not look like the bad guy, particularly after the contentious um, confirmation hearing that he had. And if he has something to point to, to say, look, you know, I, I, I am not uh, always on one side or another, that that gives him a way to look at it. So if you're looking at oral arguments or listening to oral arguments, like we still can, at least for the end of the year, um, those are the two folks that I would look at to get an idea as to whether some consensus building is possible. Thank you so much, Kimberly Atkins Stewart and Jess Braven, for an illuminating discussion in a Supreme Court term that may shed a lot of heat. You have cast much light and help us uh, think about the cases uh, in a deep and meaningful way. Kim, Jess, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by David Stotts. Research was provided by Michael Esposito, Chase Hansen, and Lana Ulrich. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who is hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional illumination and debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, the passion, the engagement, and the devotion to lifelong learning of people like you across the country and around the globe who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.